Pod, we're joined by Emily Herrera. She's an investor at Night Ventures, which is an early stage consumer VC fund. We put on our Patagonia vests, get a crash course in the world of VC, learn how Gen Z is affecting the way people fundraise, and get her predictions on the types of startups she thinks will emerge soon. But before we get there, let's discuss what's in our scrolls. We've got a jam-packed news cycle. Trey, kicking it over to you. What do you got? Awesome. So I don't know if you guys have seen that bright green olive oil in the squeezy bottle, Graza. Yes. I've seen <laughs> it. I've heard of it. Don't have it. So, but I've-, I've tried it. Oh. Right. So they just basically prettified olive oil and made it into a nice squeezable fun bottle. Um, but then another brand called Brightland uh, launched their own pizza oil in a squeezy bottle. And it stoked a lot of debate. The founder of Graza Olive Oil in the Green Bottle, Andrew Benin, publicly denounced Brightland as a copycat, basically saying that he, they, they bought, they borrowed the squeeze bottle design. Listen, listen, oil hasn't caused as much controversy since the Gulf War. So, you know, winding like, <laughs> <laughs> that one up all there's a lot. This was like this is like startup st- you got everything from a startup world. Long LinkedIn attacks, long LinkedIn apologies, people on both sides being like, This is an issue, this is a non-issue. Um but yeah, I, I don't think it's a non-entity. It certainly it got a lot of press, New York Times, BBC. I know. I feel like this is like the the impact of like LinkedIn founder culture in large part. But I remember Graza Graza was in the press in January, too, because they had the apology that went viral. I don't know if you guys saw that one, too. But they, they basically had a lot of issues with their holiday orders where like people either weren't getting them in time for the holiday or the orders were coming like in some way damaged or like not in gift wrap. And so the guy was, or the founder who's now in this controversy, like got a lot of like LinkedIn buzz because he did, you know, a version of the notes app apology, but that it felt a little bit less PR heavy and like, they were like, this is such an authentic and honest response and really understand, like shows how he understands his audience or whatever. But I feel like, I don't know, this guy is just on a tear, maybe. At what point that was just pouring your olive oil into like a squeezy bottle, just like brain empty. <laughs> what are you doing? I know. I was like, that can't be like a copyright. You can't trademark that. Like, yeah. you know, like pizza restaurants put olive oil in like ketchup right. bottles. I think like. I saw it in like the original Super Mario Brothers movie. <laughs> of original Super Mario Brothers movie fame, the squeezy bottle of olive right. oil. Right. <laughs> it's been, it's been around since at least 1993, since like Pizza Hut days of yore. <laughs> So the lesson here is the lesson here is always buy the OG version, Kirkland signature. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's a perfect transition. Clara, what's in your scroll? All of my scroll, well, my scroll today, the day after the first Monday of May, is all my gala stuff. I I mean, I would love to know both of your thoughts, both what you loved or what you hated from the red carpet because or the is it a red carpet even no, I think it, it was like a it was like a red white and blue carpet I'm not sure what that was about but I know but there was like a roach that stole the show there was Pedro <laughs> Pascal's kneecaps there was like a lot to see a lot to loathe so curious what you loved and loathed from the Met this year 
I was not really into Chloe Feynman and Derek Blasberg, who were the two red carpet hosts who were like blatantly intoxicated. Um, and Chloe Feynman got Stella McCartney's name wrong. And Stella McCartney was like, whoa, 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 who are you? Basically, it was quite funny. Um, so that was definitely the part that I loved. Loathed probably the majority of it. Um, wasn't <laughs> wasn't here for a lot of the black and white bland looks like people thought Carl Lagerfeld, the famed designer of Chanel, who was the subject of the Met Gala, um, only did sort of monochrome looks and everyone wore like the camellia flower or something. I mean, it's I don't think he would be like offended by the amount of like random celebrities who were like, I met Carl once and we and he said to me, like he was like to Michael Kors, like, why am I so tan? Let me tell you, Carl. And I'm like, how does everyone have a random memory of like Carl roasting them and now drudging it out as if it's like this iconic moment that was like a career defining thing for them? Embarrassing, sad. I know it was it was interesting because I feel like in the lead up to the Med Gala too, there was a lot of conversation about like some of the controversy around Carl Lagerfeld too. And so it was interesting, like the whiplash effect between like all of these like thought pieces from like Refinery29 about like what's problematic about the Met this year. And then it's like, OMG, like someone dresses up as like Carl Lagerfeld's cat. Meow. So cute. <laughs> Which I feel like what is wrong to me about like so much pop culture discourse when it tries to get like ethical is that it is like completely toothless. And the second like somebody does something plausibly viral, like whatever the platform is, like completely changes their tune. Um, personally, my favorite thing to come out of it is the Alexander Skarsgård interview where he eats oysters before going and then talks about how his character on Succession, I'm not going to say it, but just read the piece. I don't even know how to pronounce it. Cash, Cashcock, Cashcock <laughs> core. <laughs> give us, give us a quick TLDR on Cash, Cashcock. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. Sorry. I, I teased and did not get into it, but basically. <laughs> you teased the Cashcock. <laughs> I did. It's basically casual peacocking is his concept for how Madsen dresses on succession. Like, whereas the Roy children are all very like buttoned up, like business casual, but, you know, hyper looks. Here's five looks to nail the quiet luxury. Exactly. Show. It's like, here's <laughs> how you can nail cashcock at your next board meeting or whatever yeah. it is. But no, so his concept for Madsen is that he dresses like, in this way that's hyper casual, but at the same time, like kind of signally. Um, but yeah, that's, I digress. That was my, that was my rose. My thorn was all of the cat core. Clothing. Yeah. Just, you mm -hmm. mean Jared Leto dressed as a furry? Yeah, that I wasn't, that kind of gave me the heebie-jeebies and I love yeah. cats. So that says something, you know. Doja Cat like fully went as like a cat with cat prosthetic face on, like her top lip did not move. And then it was done by the makeup artist, Pat McGrath, but then they started making Cat McGrath jokes. And that's when I knew I changed the channel. I know my log off starts here today. Right. The cleanse starts now. <laughs> exactly. Well, do you have a Met take? No, I actually was, I, I wasn't tuning in. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you, except for why not on what's left you, of Twitter. Not a Carl fan. Uh, I saw, I saw some, some funny memes here and there. Uh, he's great on succession. <laughs> Love Carl. I just, I don't know. Not my forte. I'd rather watch the Rangers get eliminated in game seven of the NHL playoffs. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, wow. People had so much hope for that. I know. Well, anyway, uh, what's in my scroll, you ask? Total 180. Right. Isn't uh, it always? So, I know. <laughs> I know. But Let's go yeah. serious. Eli, Let's with the most terrifying thing you've ever heard in your life. Take it away. <laughs> hey, come on. Uh, so, what will be two weeks ago from now? Good old Uncle Joe Biden announced his re-election campaign to many surprise. And immediately, uh, the RNC released a rebuttal ad that was made entirely through generative AI. And it was filled with fake disasters, both foreign and domestic. So there was a scene of China invading Taiwan. There was a scene of US markets in freefall, boarded up stores, crisis at the border, all things you don't even need AI to, <clears throat> to make. But anyway, I thought it was interesting because I think 2024, just as 2008 and 2012 were like the social media elections, 2024 will be like the, the AI election. And I think it has potential to probably be like way more disruptive. And yeah, I mean, A, I thought it was funny, kind of like funny, not in like, haha, but funny is, well, actually it was kind of funny, haha. Yeah, AI electable as Clara drops in the in the chat. Um, but I'm curious if you guys saw saw this ad. Oh yeah. My yeah. take is like, is that all you got? Like <laughs> this is the worst you can imagine if Biden's elected president. Right. Like, well, that's kind of my point. Like you kind of got free free reign. But another interesting thing is like there's no no rules for AI in like the FEC, which is like the Federal Election Committee, there's there's nothing, there's no precedent here at all, which is scary a little bit. I'm also just curious as to like the types of prompts that they're dropping into these. Um, but yeah. My thing is just like you had, you know, the AI world at your disposal and they probably like prompted like Joe sleeping. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't need to imagine these things. This is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, like for better or worse and not to get like super political about it, but like I grew up in D.C. and like the anti-abortion trucks and stuff have always had like these very graphic, not real images, like, quote unquote, depicting abortion. Like, I think like the sort of fear mongering tactic that the right often uses to like bring attention to like whatever progressive candidate or cause that they don't like. I feel like and maybe to your point, Trey, it's like. What can they imagine that's worse than what they already do, if that makes sense? I think like AI has scary potential in terms of like maybe the believability of somebody, whatever, like a fake video of Joe Biden saying something. But I wonder, like, is that convincing any additional people than who believed whatever fake news was around in like 2016? You know, and it's just like a new way of talking to the same group of people. And I don't know how impactful it is, other than the fact that it is like terrifying and maybe i'm wrong but like no i don't i don't know i think i think it will be far more impactful than like say a uh a tweet that is tagged flagged as misinformation i do think it's way more tangible it's way more tangibly fake if that makes sense like the ai is more tangible or what's more tangibly fake the ai is and i think it's way more persuasive than like i don't know a tweet or a facebook post or something yeah I guess my question, which is like an open question, is like whether it's persuasive to like net new people. You know what I mean? Where I feel yeah. like 
it is persuasive and I agree with you. It is like very powerful, but just like whether or not it swings votes one way or the other, I think will be interesting and like open question. I'm just curious. Yeah, what happens. The, that's a new type of swing voter. That's interesting. Now, now this is some like pod save America, whatever, yada, yada, snooze. <laughs> we um, need Marianne Williamson on the AI train. Like I'd love to see her quotes come to life. She's AI. all over TikTok. She's a celeb. Yeah. Amazing. I know. Well, for us to find out, but uh, what else is for us to find out is all about the world of VC, Gen Z, <laughs> etc. So stay tuned for part two of the pod with Emily Herrera. Did AI make that transition? <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
Um, it's still like, you know, 40, 50 employees around that for like a, like a later early stage stuff. Um, but it's not people who are making, you know, a bajillion dollars necessarily. So that's the early stage part. And then the last part is the consumer stuff. Um, and that's nowadays a mix between kind of like consumer packaged good stuff. Think like Olipop, think, um, like Feastables and Mr. B stuff. Um, but then also consumer software, and that could be like Twitter or Uber or any of those kind of like apps on your phone uh, or websites that you go to frequently and you put in kind of like a credit card for a recurring charge. Um, and that's called like SaaS, uh, all that kind of stuff. So it's software that people, everyday people that know nothing about startups use every single day and then physical goods. So is it fair to say that you are seeing as an early stage VC person, yeah. a lot of the ideas that will shape culture probably in like five or 10 years, even from now, if not sooner. Yeah. I think that's kind of one of the reasons why I like doing it is you're looking at the businesses that are probably hopefully going to change the way that people spend their money, but then also the individual people who will take that money. Cause it's like very much so a privilege people get to go and get venture capital and Usually traditionally small businesses can either take on like a traditional loan or just have to make the money or fund it in advance. And so when you get VC money, you have the ability to hire really quickly. So it's also a certain kind of distribution of wealth, if you think about it that way, where you're now kind of taking on these like really big bets and you have this big budget and you can hire a bunch of people. So you're basically, um, so it's also the business, but it's also betting in the person that in the way that they build a business, that it'll be sustainable. It'll hopefully be not like net bad for society, um, but also that person now becomes a becomes a big manager, becomes a CEO of a bunch of money and a bunch of people. So um, sometimes if they haven't had that level of management um, before that job, it could be a little bit scary. But um, you know, the right person that has good vision and likes picking people in a in a very good way is is really exciting to be around. So yeah, so long story short, yeah. <laughs> I was just curious, like. You mentioned Mr. Beast, but like, what are some of your other clients or plate or people that you work with, companies you work with? Yeah, I can go into also in a second. This will cover the whole like night media and night ventures thing. Yeah, um, kind of the relationship between that, uh, all of that stuff. So I'll do that. Um, Trey, did you have a, a separate question about like, <laughs> crazy thought? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I was gonna say like I imagine the pressure cooker these people are in to come up with these ideas. You have to have such a kind of confident personality that borderline like egomaniacal theranos startup founder personality that like often ends up in you know kendall roy succession like pitch vibes where you're just like losing your mind but um it was not an actual no no, no. It's, it's totally it's totally valid i think that and i'll get into like why i decided to go more into this job but you definitely you know, every VC, I think that's the funny thing because like you could be a partner, you could be an associate, you could be an analyst, you could be an operating partner. There's like a bunch of different roles at a fund, but everybody is like a VC. Like once you get the ability to like write a check or help with a check, you're like a VC. And I think each person, it's so weirdly individualistic that way. And it's because literally it's about how you mesh with the other person that you're talking to. And like a lot of it, people don't want to say is like very person to person based. So like our last investment, I spent a lot of time with that girl and I just loved her as a person. Um, and because we're a small enough fund that, and also just the way that kind of like the guys and I do business is that we like 
throwing a lot of our resources and a lot of our attention towards the founders that we work with. Not every fund's like that, but we're small enough where we get to do that. Um, it becomes even more of a person to person connection. So, you know, I'm fortunate enough where I usually like to uh, work with people who are like me, but you know, everybody has a different flavor, I think in this industry. So people like to work with stronger personalities. I like stronger personalities, but I like stronger personalities that like can hang out, you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's at least the hope. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to hear more about Night Ventures and Night Media as a whole and kind of your portfolio and what you guys do. Totally. Totally. So this is, this is my little shtick. So, um, so Knight Ventures is out of this company called Knight Media, which is a creator management company. And now we call it like a new age talent management company. And basically Knight has really in the past two-ish years has turned from being a traditional talent management to being more of a business management. And I say that because kind of more traditional talent management um, will get you maybe more PR and get you maybe some more brand deals. Like we do that stuff. But we also like to explore different avenues that each creative person likes to pursue, whether it be music or long form, like longer, longer form, like shows and movies. Um, also, if they want to become a founder of a company or if they want to become an investor and start up their own VC uh, fund or write angel checks, stuff like that. So, um, so that's kind of been the, the little arc that Knight's been going off of. And in doing that arc, Around, you know, maybe two-ish years ago, uh, there was this whole creator economy boom in the startup industry. And a lot of these founders were like, I don't think we can figure this out without, before reaching out to some more creators. So they started sending their cap tables more towards creators. A lot of them were being the, the bigger creators, which are a lot of the ones that we manage. They're very like, I like to say they're very community-based creators. They're not more of like the celebrity name necessarily, but they're people that have very much so big cult followings. Um, so once they started doing that, Reed, who's the CEO, basically decided like, this is an opportunity for us to collaborate with them. And then also for me to maybe hire out a team that could professionally do this for them. So it's not just one-off checks and not really knowing, you know, where to put your money because that stuff kind of adds up, especially for a creator. So, um, yeah, so he set out with his partner Ezra and then found Ben and they eventually found me and we became this little collective. And um, I'll also say, so our, our biggest relationship with our creators is that half, around half of our, uh, what we call like LP base. And that just means the people that we get money from. So each fund has a limited number of people that you can get money from. Um, and that's why usually they go to like the richer kinds of people because you want to get like a larger amount for a fewer number of people. So uh, what Reed decided to do is to go to a bunch of creators and say like, do you have an interest in investing in startups? I can hire out a team, um, but you just become an LP and you can kind of get a first row seat into how to start a venture fund and how VC works and angel investments. And you can see the deals that they're seeing and there'll be people that are maybe more suits. Um, so I'm one of two suits and <laughs> that's kind of how it started. Um, so that was around a year and a half ago. Um, and yeah, so now that's the early stage fund. Also in night media, there's a traditional talent management, uh, where you get like a manager and brand deals and all that kind of stuff. It's also what we call an incubator, um, which is if a creator has an idea and they want to go start it out, think about like Mr. Beast and Feastables, um, uh, or Beast Burger, any of those kinds of things. Um, basically they come with this idea and there's a full staff team within night 
that will hear it out, kind of flesh out this idea with them, no judgment at all. And then once they get at something that maybe could be a little bit more scalable, they'll help them usually raise money the way that any other founder would raise money, but then also um, staff them up with people who have very formal experience on what they want to be doing. So um, think about people who uh, have either done the equivalent and more of the startup side. So if a, a founder says like, I want someone who's created CPG products for like Pepsi or like a really big company, um, our job is also kind of to act as almost recruiters and to go and scope out those people the same way that a lot of VCs do for um, their portfolio founders and kind of like schmooze and see if you can kind of sell them on working with these creators. So talent management, incubator, early stage fund, so it's a bunch of stuff. So media buyout fund with the churning group. That's like to buy out CPG brands, but creators on them, media stuff, um, almost like a record label. I don't know if it's actually called a record label and a production studio. So it's a whole bunch of stuff. And the idea, like I said before, is to really build with these creators and, and see what their interests are and make sure that we have the avenues that they can pursue them professionally. One thing that we've been talking about a lot here at our agency, having worked with a lot of creators, mostly on like partnering with brand side of things is... When you, I know there was a sort of a boom in the creator economy, especially when the pandemic hit and that seemed to be like possibly the only option for a lot of young people now, and this is not true of all people, some are like completely growing and growing, but some, you know, are either plateauing or their engagement numbers are not as high anymore. And there's a lot of discussion about like, where do we go from here? If I'm a creator and my content is like not doing, not hitting those same numbers or my fans have like fatigued, uh, you know about the content I'm posting, like, what can I do? And I think that starting a business or putting your name on something, whether it's like a consumer packaged good or whatever, seems to be the case. I'm wondering if like the creators you work with are actively thinking about that from the beginning and like how that process works. Like a lot of people have ideas. A lot of them are probably not great. Uh, so how do you kind of take a kernel of an idea with them and grow it into something that can be a business that would be successful? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And uh, my partner, Ben, kind of works more on the incubator and I mostly just help with the investment side, but I can give you a little bit of an insight on, on the signing process and on um, also kind of like that interest going into the incubator because not everybody has to incubate something. We have plenty of talent that kind of has their own business on the side um, or maybe doesn't have a separate business and just wants to partner with uh, talent management like Knight. Um, because we do work with a lot of larger brands and all that kind of stuff. Um, but mostly I think, uh, night media likes to work with people who are open to it. Um, so people that are kind of homegrown within their niche and have a really strong, very passionate relationship with their fan base and like, will not, will not budge. So typically a creator is decently stubborn and we think that's like kind of a good thing. Um, but is also open to really picking the right idea. So on the incubation side, it's a couple of people that work on that side. And um, I think it's half kind of like, it can feel almost like therapy. A lot of people have a lot of ideas, like you said, but it really is just like brainstorming um, on a, almost like whiteboard kind of vibe. And you're writing out all these different ideas that you've had. And then this is kind of the fun part where um, Ben, and he was at a big fund uh, before working at night. So he's kind of had a lot of exposure to startups in general. He'll be like, huh, okay, like that sounds like this company. And then the creator will be like, oh, what does that do? Like, this is the end product what I want, but like, it, maybe it's a business model that's different. Maybe there's a lot of tech involved. Like, can you explain it to me 
in like very much so layman's terms. And um, that's a lot of what the incubator team does is they'll go around and find some like really good markets um, that maybe haven't been tackled very well and either can present those to a creator that makes sense. Um, so an example is that we did, um, Ben and I mapped really hard, like the women's health space. And we had a creator who was really interested in making more content about women's health and something that she hadn't explored really in her content before, but she really cared about because she was going through personal issues about it. And, um, I had also just so happened to hear that conversation and I had a lot of women's health issues. So, um, basically said to her, like, let me go and figure out what are the companies that have raised money before and what do they look like? What do they do right? And what do they do wrong? And then I basically present to her and say, like, you know, this is just all the information that's out on the market right now. Um, you know, what do you think in terms of more of like the consumer interest? Um, and I think that's kind of part of the reason why I wanted to work with creators is because when you do that breakdown for them, they do a really good job of being like, you know, maybe the business model made sense, but maybe this is what was off about the business. And because I know my audience better, usually they they kind of know the consumer insight a little bit better than maybe a technical or product person in like a traditional startup sense. So um, so it's a lot of market mapping. It's a lot of patience. It's a lot of kind of no bad ideas mentality. And uh, it's also a lot of testing. Um, not every single product makes it to the end line. And I think that Nick does a really good job of being like, you know what, we tried it, um, but we're basically... Uh, you know, it's a big catch up period to becoming a creator that's just making content, you know, maybe in your parents' bedroom, and then all of a sudden running kind of like a couple million dollar company in like a year. That's like a lot of pressure out of it. <laughs> um, so we got, you know, it takes a lot of trying and stuff, but, um, but yeah, so that's, that's a very long winded saying, long winded way of saying a lot of patience and a lot of trying. Yeah, it's interesting how creators are kind of like building that audience first, where that was probably something that was so foreign before when, you know, in startup culture. Now you like have a direct line to your consumer and know exactly what they want before you can build out the product or the company that fulfills that need, which is just, I guess I haven't really considered that, but I'm having that thought now and it's very mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's also this kind of thing now, I think it's really funny because I've, tried because I, I wasn't a creatory kind of person before this job. So it was like the biggest tailwind. Like I came into basically talent management. Everybody's like, I know this person, I know this person. This is what we do. This is where we hang out and blah, blah. And I'm from New York. And I was like, oh, I don't really have an audience. I've never tried to be a creator really. I have like a Twitter following, but it's not really like my thing. Um, and it was a really different kind of like culture shift. But there's one thing that I've noticed. It's not like a trend in the startup space. And it's called like pre-founder programs. So it's exactly what it sounds like. It's right before someone starts their idea. So they'll try to scout out like, you know, if we were to go and try to incubate around someone, like would this person be a good profile for us to build out this company with them? And I think it's really going to lead a lot of like Silicon Valley people all the way down probably to creators because there are a lot of people who are creators, but also part-time. So maybe they have a a different job like what we call like an operating job or like a creation job and um and i think just like the hardest thing for early stage companies is distribution kind of like what you're saying so that's an interesting trend that i'm seeing amongst startups is like they're like let's do pre-founder programs let's scout out people who maybe have really good distribution but they're not putting two and two together of being like 
you know who has pretty good distribution as an individual person that isn't thinking about a company yet? Creators. <laughs> oh, no, I'm also curious, just because like you were saying off pod that you like in college and stuff were educating people on VCs and like helping them sort of like start to get into it. Like we talk a lot here about how Gen Z is like super entrepreneurial and interested in kind of like striking out on their own. So I'm curious from your perspective, like both what drew you to it, but then also just like, in working with other people like at night ventures, but then also just generally like, what do you think the draw is for like, especially Gen Z towards like venture capital? Definitely. It's a great question. Um, it's probably one of my favorite questions to think about. Um, wow. <laughs> literally it's cause it's, it's, it's more and more common. I went back to my old college the other day and I got like swarmed with a lot of questions about VC. And back when I was in school, no one had any idea what that was. And it's such a weirdly like complicated, it's like complicated for no reason. It's just like very gate kept. So now that I'm hearing a lot of people have interest in it, I get really excited. I'm like, who the hell is like telling everybody? Like, this is, why didn't I hear about this earlier? Um, but I'll first start with like a very shortened version of how I tangibly got into it. Blah, blah, blah. I used to work for a bunch of women's tech things back in like 2015 to 2018 worked at companies like Girls Who Code. There was a platform called Built by Girls that was out of AOL. And I was around a lot of really interesting girls, but also a lot of really interesting different education models and very like community-based learning, um, which I went to like a normal high school and stuff, very like normal public school. So that was something that was very different for me. Um, so I really learned to love that kind of learning. So did that for a bit, went to college, was a computer science journalism major at Northeastern, um, really enjoyed like storytelling and finding stuff out. I always ask way too many questions and my dad always tells me that. So I was like, I'll just go into journalism. So <laughs> I started doing both things at the same time, um, ended up doing like a bunch of at Northeastern, they have like these co-op programs and work study periods basically. Um, and then I would do a bad thing where I would do a work study period and then I would just extend the period into my next semester. So I would just be like, why would I go back? And I could just keep working. Uh, I really liked the job that I, that I had. And then I just kept doing that. Um, at some point, uh, I had heard from one of my friends at Northeastern and she said that there was a student facing fund, um, that was looking for like scouts. So scouting is like a whole other thing, but basically those are people who are given the ability to bring a deal to a fund um, and potentially get some kind of financial kickback for doing that. So like literally little scouts that go around looking for companies. And this fund was only looking for students. So um, I ended up getting that position and I really focused on one kind of regionally Boston because I was there. And then two, also media, because they're really looking for a media person. So I did those two things. But when I got there, I really realized that the women that were in this program, and there was like a few of them, didn't really know each other. And it just felt very classic, like OG women in techie problems where they're very like heads down. They're not really like socializing or engaging in community stuff because they really want to hit metrics and kind of prove that validation. And it's a whole thing. But I had some really good advice from my friends, especially my guy friends there, and they said, M, like, this is an unpaid thing. So you're not actually getting paid to do this. There are plenty of funds that have scouting programs. So the best thing you can do right now is really engage in the community and make friends and learn what people want to do. Because when you guys grow up, you could be, potentially become something that's really interesting. So did that, um, blah, blah, blah. 
COVID came. Basically, I just decided, I'm like, you know what? We're all locked down. Let me try to get all these girls on the phone. Um, there was like maybe four or five different funds that were focusing on students. And I started this little community. Um, and then we really started crowdsourcing to see like what was helpful to them as younger people that were still in college. What do they need? That really came down to paid coffee chats, merch, um, and then also like some study materials if they wanted to get certified or maybe they, um, you know, maybe needed some help uh, with their like summer internship finding and stuff like that. So a bunch of different stuff going on there. Uh, and then after that, basically, I started getting some requests from uh, older people at funds who were interested in learning like a Gen Z perspective. And that was something that was totally unplanned because at that point, my community wasn't very formalized at all, um, but they were asking for very specific questions. So I was like, okay, either I could keep running these coffee chats with my own internship money, or I could just have these people basically pay for it. Um, so I started doing that, started running a bunch of basically surveys and selling them as insights to GPs. And that's really what got a lot of the attention of these older people on me. Um, and then I started like placing girls into jobs and stuff and, um, they were all really my friends. So it was a really good opportunity to do that. Learned a bunch and, uh, started this thing called the syndicate. It's a whole thing, basically super easy. It's a, um, so as a person who runs the syndicate, I open a bank account. Whenever I see a cool company, I go find rich people. They put money into this and then I close it and I send it over, but it's like little tiny clips rather than having like a big fund. Um, I didn't really make any money off of it at all, but it was really good experience and, um, started doing that, blah, blah, blah. Um, one of my old bosses at, um, built by girls out of AOL had a fund. I hit her up. I said, Hey, I think I want to do this thing. Can you talk to me? And she said, you know what I could do? I can give you a job. Uh, <laughs> so started working there, worked at a different fund called Harlem Capital focused on, um, kind of like diverse founders, but, uh, BBG Ventures, which is the first one was really about diverse consumers. Um, and then eventually, yeah, the creator thing. And that kind of leads me to the last part of your question. I'm sorry, it's so long. Um, but the last thing mostly was uh, that I wanted to figure out how to invest in shit that people actually cared about. And I realized that a lot of investing in consumer stuff right now is like very random. Like this is no shade to anybody, but I've never bought all birds in my entire life. I don't know if I ever will. Um, <laughs> so I was like, you know what I want to do? Probably not that kind of investment. My dad loves them, but I don't love them. So the sounds like a sounds like a PSA. Let, oh yeah, please don't like cancel me, like the Alberts people. Um, send my dad some shoes, please. Um, but but yeah, so so I realized that I was like, let me try to figure out what younger women like because it's just a narrative that I'd gotten validated over and over again that a lot of GPs at these consumer funds didn't know um, by selling insights, by placing these girls into roles, by um, doing syndicates off of them. I just realized it was like something that I had an edge over just at that moment. So did that and uh, blah, 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 moved to Miami, moved to LA. Ben reached out through DM because he was like, hey, we're a bunch of dudes and we're doing a bunch of dude things. We were Mr. Beast and a lot of gaming and stuff. So we need someone that knows girl stuff. And then, yeah, and then found me. <laughs> I, I want to ask your predictions and feel free to divulge proprietary info uh, if you'd like. But um, what kinds of startups do you think we will be seeing even in the next like two to three years that you think maybe are in those spaces you were speaking about earlier or just solve problems that we are currently experiencing? Maybe I know like AI is on everyone's minds. What can we expect? Yeah, let's see. 
So I can say maybe like six months out and then I'll kind of like, you know, Hail Mary it down and see if I'm right. Um, I think because there's there's a there's the cool stuff of like consumer. And then there's also like the super boring stuff. I might offend some of my friends, but they know that's boring of like enterprise stuff. And enterprise software is like the stuff that companies buy. And it's like not really useful for individual people. Traditionally in the past, maybe 10, 15 years, there was a lot of money made to like enterprise SaaS and enterprise software, like will always make a lot of money. It's a very confusing thing to do. And I don't do stuff like that. But I think um, a lot of the future of AI will be in enterprise looking stuff. So like AI and medicine or AI and construction, like things that are facing more towards traditional businesses that have to be disrupted. I think in terms of consumer facing stuff, that stuff's really hard to predict, but I don't like AI specifically is like a tool, you know, it's like no one really owns it. I guess maybe like two guys right now technically own a lot of it, but like, it's not really, uh, uh, it's been around for a hot minute. Like we've had Siri on our phones for a long time. I was just going to say, even, even then about like ownership, I feel like that's a debate that's starting to happen with like Reddit saying that open AI needs to pay. Yeah. to like use their um subreddits etc but yes to your point I, you're right those, totally. Totally. those two for the most part yeah or three depending yeah on. yeah i mean like those contracts specifically it's from a business owner to a business owner right like that's really where like a lot of cash will be made a lot of big fights will be made in that stuff i think the concern a lot more towards like users is um a lot of privacy stuff and a lot of kind of stuff but i still see like consumer facing ai stuff as like a tool like it's not really like a set business yet um, or we have yet to see one yet. However, I did use FaceApp the other day, which is the tool that the Kardashians use to edit their photos. And it is like God tier. Like I look like, I look like a Kardashian, like, and it was all AI. Like I just pressed the button and it's like, oh yeah, I want to look like this. And it changed my entire appearance. I basically deleted Facetune off of my phone and I'll never redownload it. Um, never redownload it. And basically it's like $7 um, and it will change my entire appearance mm -hmm. completely. Um, so, so maybe that's one example, but other than that, I haven't really seen something that's, that's stuck that long. Um, I would say healthcare people don't, anything that is <laughs> like such a nonsense answer, but going off of like trust and institutions and stuff, if it's historically been like very institutionalized, it's going to get disrupted on the consumer side, uh, because no one wants to work with them. Like people are saying, why would I go into like a big uh hospital if i don't have an emergency let me just walk into like one medical and like get it figured out there you know so healthcare um education um i think those are the two that really will get like reset completely just get ripped apart climate stuff is very tricky again i think it'd be more limited to like enterprise stuff a lot of a lot of money will be made on the enterprise side i think it's hard for individual people to necessarily like really tackle that problem um yeah i'd say still consumer cyber um underserved consumer underserved consumer also can include small businesses um so think like small business owners of even like trucking companies or farming companies um everything that's not silicon valley and faces a consumer i think will become popular mostly because a lot of those people are either retired kind of bored hired a bunch of younger people that look like me and I'm like, I don't know, tell me what's cool. 
And a lot of that stuff is going to come from the conversations that you guys have every day. Because uh, a lot of this consumer conversation, like, I don't really know that much. I know about consumer VC stuff, but you guys spend more time with actual consumers than VCs do. So I would say whatever you guys say, because that's, <laughs> that's the flip of funnel. I'm not even kidding. Um, that's the flip of funnel that I think younger VC people uh, acknowledge a lot of the time that they're like, what do we know? We just talk to a bunch of suits all day. Like yeah. go out in the crowd and figure out what's more interesting. But I think there is a, like a lot of crossover, oddly, well, not maybe not oddly enough in the in the the work that we do, which is kind of what I was trying trying to get at. Is like I feel like once you have a consumer unlock of those insights, like you can use that as runway to totally. raise capital. But that said, uh, I know our cybersecurity, our head of cybersecurity, Dennis Huck, will be very pleased at your answer. Um, because he's always pushing an agenda and I'm, Hey, I'm aligned with it. But, um, so before we close out, want to know where our audience can find you, not in the doxing sense and like, uh, you know, online. Sense. I should dox myself. I'm happy. Yeah, dox myself. Please, yeah. By all means. yeah, please. Um, if I get referred for my building, I'll get a thousand dollars. My house become my neighbor. Um, no, that's, so a, that's an, that's an idea. All right. Anyway, sorry. Okay. Go on. I bought, that's another thing is like rental and like homeownership. We didn't even talk about that. Um, Isn't that Adam Newman's whole thing? Yeah, that's like co-living and stuff. Yeah, living plus. I'm seeing a lot of companies that are doing like kickback for referrals or um, if I jo join like a co-op building that they'll give me discounts for things that are local to around me. There are a couple of those companies that are around there. I kind of like, um, there's also like the, the co-living stuff where it's like I pay a set amount every month and I have the option to live in like eight different places. Mm -hmm. Statistically, it's kind of complicated. Um, we'll stay close on it. Yeah. Can't lie, but it exists. So yeah, a lot of co-living and stuff like that. That's that's a whole thing. But I think that that's more niche to like cities. I think it's mm -hmm. less of a typical thing in like things that are not just cities. So I don't like to bring that up all the time, but it is something that's really interesting. Okay. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is uh, Emily H X R R E R A. <laughs> <laughs> very embarrassing no no not at all um i used to be a fan fiction -y kind of person i had a fan account so that's where i come from um so you can find me there you can also find me emilyferrer.com and then you can also email me em at night.co um if you want to talk to any of my partners or myself there's also a cold inbound form to pitch us on the night website uh which is just nightventures.com um and yeah mostly find me on twitter you can also find me on instagram this is just emily herrera so you do that too <laughs> i wish we um i wish we had time to dive into the the fan account stuff but next time next time okay. <laughs> um great well thanks for coming on the pod cool thank you for having me no doubt thanks for listening in be sure to check out more on d1a.com forward slash perspectives and sign up for our bi-weekly newsletter to get the latest trends and insights directly to your mailbox.